Hi, Chip. Good to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Hardy. Great to be Great there. To be there. <laughs> so um, for everybody who doesn't know you, uh, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. <clears throat> I um, started a boutique hotel company um, in 1987 when I was 26 years old uh, called Joie de Vivre, uh, based in San Francisco. It became the second largest in the United States. Um, after 24 years of running it, I sold it uh, to a guy named John Pritzker, whose father started the Hyatt chain. And then for the last six and a half years, I have been helping the three founders of Airbnb um, steer their rocket ship uh, as both the in-house mentor to Brian the Chesky, the CEO, but also the head of global hospitality and strategy for four years, and then now a strategic advisor for two and a half years. So I've done that, and then I've written a bunch of books, including my most recent book, which is called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, and that led me to creating something called the Modern Elder Academy, which is the first midlife wisdom school in the world. Got it. So um, before we talk about your projects and your career, um, could you please talk a little bit about your childhood and how you grew up and yeah, give, give our listeners a bit of context of who you are? Sure. I um, grew up in Southern California. Uh, they called me a curious white boy. Um, that's because <laughs> I, I went to Snoop Dogg's high school. So <laughs> I was the, I was a minority, which actually was, I think everybody should be a minority at one time in their, in their life because it helps you understand what does it mean to be the other. And so in that context, and I, so I'm sure Hardy, you know about that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I do. I do. I so grew up in this sort of, uh, you know, a middle class environment. And then I went to Stanford. Uh, and Stanford Business School. And uh, so my background was very much quite diverse. Um, and then I, my college and my graduate school years were was somewhat of an elite institution. And um, that's what I really learned that, you know, deep down inside of me, I was a pretty intuitive people person about humans. Um, if you've had a lot of exposure to a variety of different kinds of humans, to a diverse collection of people, you you pick up the pattern recognition at a young age of different ways people operate. Not so much in stereotypes of different kinds of people, as much as just understanding the cues. You, you, you're a first-class noticer. Um, you're a first-class noticer, which means you're really observant of people. And some people are, and some people aren't. You can, I think generally as people get older, they get more observant on them, of themselves and others. But I was lucky enough at a young age to be observant, and to build that over the course of time. So basically, you had a pretty good childhood and um, you learned a lot of soft skills, right? I did, yes. Um, I also was, my father was a um, Marine captain in the, in the reserves and he was a pretty hardcore guy and um, he had high expectations for me uh, in terms, does that sound familiar? <laughs> yeah, a bit, a bit. <laughs> yeah. um, and so part of my challenge in my 20s was learning to break away from the path that my parents had for me and uh, take my own path, which was to, at age 25, build a business plan to create uh, one of the first boutique hotel companies in the United States. And it didn't make any sense. I had a real estate background, but no hotel background. My parents were looking at me like, what are you doing? You could have gone to work for Morgan Stanley Investment Bank. They wanted you. You were the, I worked there between my first and second year of business school, and they wanted me back. But no, I, I, 
I wanted to take, I wanted to do something that was much more maverick and entrepreneurial. Um, and what I loved about getting into the boutique hotel business is it allowed me to be using some of my design sensibility, but most importantly, it allowed me to be in the business of creating joy of life, which joie de vivre means joy of life in French. And, and really that's what I wanted to try to create is a culture of joie de vivre and very few companies have their name, their mission statement in their name. And, and we did. So um, tell us a story about like how you got into entrepreneurship and how you got into the hospitality business. So I, uh, after graduating from Stanford Business School, I was quite young. I went straight from Stanford undergrad into the business school uh, for because I had taken some classes as an undergrad in the business school, and, and I guess I'd done pretty well. And so I was 23 when I graduated. I spent two and a half years learning the commercial real estate development business in San Francisco, and um, I so I knew something about real estate, um, but I didn't know anything about hotels. But I did know how to throw a party. <laughs> I, I, ever since I was a teenager, I was really good at throwing a party. So when I first walked into my first hotel, which is a broken down motel in a bad neighborhood in San Francisco, I immediately looked at the courtyard, the swimming pool, the you know one acre grounds, and I said, "This like this is an amazing place to throw a party." <laughs> I, I was you know barely 26 at that point, and. But I moved forward with it partly because I had the focus group of many friends who were staying on my couch uh, when they would come to visit me, and they didn't stay in hotels. And they kept telling me that the hotels were expensive and boring. And um, <laughs> so I wanted to create a hotel was, that was the opposite of expensive and boring. So it was cheap and cheerful and had a good design flair. And the Phoenix Hotel uh, was my first hotel of the 52 I created. And against all odds, at age 26, I became a successful uh, boutique hotelier. And I grew the company from there. Sorry. So, um, how how did you make this happen? Um, you you make this uh, look so easy. So, <laughs> um, well, the thing that was the good news was the the cost to buy this bankrupt motel um, <laughs> was, was not very large. This is like you could not like it's crazy uh, what the price was back then. Um, And so, um, and it was on a land lease, a 40-year land, so we just paid a lease payment on the land. And and then also, um, you know, I, I think uh, I had a lot of friends who really believed in me, a lot of people I grew up with who believed in me. So they didn't really necessarily believe in my business plan or the real estate, but they believed in me personally. So they invested in me. And... So I raised $1.1 million dollars, um, back in 1986, 1987 to do this project. And that's how I got started. And I, you know, I raised it from family and friends. There, there was no, no dispassionate investor was going to invest in, in what we were doing. But because, because against all odds, it became a success. And 32 years later, it's still a success. Um, it allowed me to, I think, build a reputation that I, uh, against all odds, could succeed. <laughs> so... Um, What have you learned along the way? Because um, you, you have been an advisor for, for Airbnb for so many years and built so many companies and built such a huge business. So what were the key lessons on strategy or entrepreneurship in general that you have le learned along the way? Well, I think that one of the things that I brought to Airbnb, so I brought a few things to Airbnb. Some of them I think were valuable, some were not. And the things that were most valuable were actually not even the things that I thought I was bringing. So what I, what I did bring was the know-how and the know-who within the hospitality business and the travel industry. 
nobody in the back in the company six and a half years ago had any background in travel or hospitality. So that sorry, was sorry to interrupt, Chip, um, but but could you please share with us like how how you got into Airbnb or how? Okay, yeah. Yes. Yes. So um, so I sold my company Joie de Vivre in 2010, and um, I wasn't really sure what was next for me. Uh, for about a year and a half, I helped as the executive chair of the company. But starting in 2012, I knew that I wanted to actually distance myself from the company and sell the rest of my shares in Joie because I, I sold a majority interest, but not uh, all of my shares. So as I was starting to say, I'm going to you know, dis, you know, decamp or uh, distance myself from Joie de that's when the Airbnb founders approached me. And they said, listen, you know, we're this small little tech startup uh, here in San Francisco. We're, we're going global. We want to democratize hospitality. Um, and with the three of us, and they were all, you know, 29 to 31 years old, the three of them, um, they had a design background, two of the three, and a, an engineering background, the third one. But they had zero background in entrepreneurship, leadership, or hospitality or travel. So that's what I brought to the table was entrepreneurship, leadership, hospitality, and the travel industry background. But the thing that ultimately they got from me, which was the surprise because I didn't, it wasn't what they asked for, was emotional intelligence mm. and being able to come in and be able to help understand how do, you, how do you develop a culture internally within the company as well as externally with our host and guest community um, that feels uh, real, that feels like not fabricated, feels real. How do you create a brand around the idea of belonging anywhere? Um, and I think that one of the things that I really did offer that I, I is something that maybe an older person sometimes can offer a younger person is you, we tend to spend the first half of our life accumulating. You accumulate knowledge, friends, uh, over time, maybe a relationship, maybe children, um, a set of responsibilities and maybe some work, uh, some commitments you've made to things that are important to you. And then by your mid 40s, sometimes you're like, oh my God, I've accumulated way too much, including stuff, too much stuff. And midlife crisis for some people is a function of like, I am weighted down by all of this. And so the second half of your life is the opposite. It's like instead of accumulating, it's about editing. And so the process of going from accumulating to editing is something you can do throughout your life. You don't have to do the first half accumulating and the second half editing. Um, and one of the things I brought to Airbnb was when I joined, there were 30 strategic initiatives. No one in the company could could actually recite all 30. Um, so as we went in, as we started doing our planning for 2014, I said, "Listen, you know, 2013, we don't have focus. So we have 23 proposed strategic initiatives for next year. We're only going to choose four. And so we spent three years in three three years three three weeks three three days three, <laughs> day, three days in New York, um, sorting through twenty three initiatives to decide what were the four we were going to bet on, and then we as a leadership team, which was twelve of us, were going to align around those four, and then explain and consistently articulate over the course of two thousand fourteen why those four were important. And I'm proud. I'm really proud of that. I, you know, I we when I joined Airbnb, it was a fast, gro fast growing rocket ship, but it could have been going in in, too, in way too many different directions because we were a sharing economy company, and there are all kinds of sharing economy businesses we could have gone into other than travel. 
but I think what I helped Brian do is understand focus was really essential. Um, and it, it meant saying no to things. And that's not an easy thing to do. So basically what you brought to the table was uh, the entrepreneurship experience and the emotional intelligence. So um, how did you like grow the, the company culture and make the company culture so great? Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs are struggling with this, um, why they're scaling their business, uh, building a bigger team and yeah, and so on and so forth. Well, I, and I, and my, and to be quite honest, I was, that was not, helping grow the culture was not necessarily in my scope, but it actually was something I did do. So I, I worked quite closely with the HR team, helped to find a head of HR for globally for uh, Airbnb with the founders, and then helped to sort through what were the core values of the company and how would we, how would they show up in everything we did. My primary focus was then how did those core values actually go out and um, be relevant to our, our vendors and our vendors are our hosts and our guests in essence. Um, but I think part of what I helped um, the HR team do is to look at what were the touch points um, in an employee's experience at Airbnb. You can, you can actually, you can identify what is the likely emotional feeling of, a, of an employee at certain times of their, their um, duration of uh, employment. You know, a, a week into it, this is the, the predominant emotion. Three months into it, this is the predominant one. A year into it, this is it. And once you understood the life cycle of emotions for your employees, you could really start to build a an employee um, experience that actually addresses those emotions, especially if some of those emotions are negative ones like regret or disappointment. Um, And so I'm um, really proud about what we did over the course of 2013, 14, 15, led us to the end of 2015 to, to receiving an award for, from Glassdoor as the, really the best company to work for uh, in the United States. Um, uh, and um, then I stayed on through 2016 and then through early 2017. So I was there four years in a full-time role and then uh, two and a half years uh, as an advisor. So um, let's give our listeners something practical because I really love this so far. But um, like, what would you tell everyone who's currently listening to this episode? Like, what would you tell them to to have a better like employee experience in the company? And um, yeah, what what would you tell them? Um, I would tell them that you know, the democratizing culture is important. What does that mean? It means that defining it as the CEO or the HR department's responsibility and it's sort of top down um, is a very old model that I think doesn't isn't relevant to a workplace today where people want to have their own personal fingers on the culture. So how do you democratize philanthropy in the company? How, like if the company is going to actually go out and support certain kinds of initiatives that are good for the community, how is it that the employees are actively involved, not just in volunteering, but in also deciding what you're going to do as a company. Um, how do you actually d democratize culture? How do you uh, help people feel like they're influencing the culture of their department or their company? How do you democratize recognition? So a lot of the old, the old school approaches, there's an employee of the month or there's this annual award ceremony where a bunch of people get the award and it's decided by the top 10 people in the company. Well, instead, how do we actually democratize that? How do you do a regular not just once a year um, survey of your employees 
so that you understand how they're feeling about their experience. Um, how do you ask the question, how can I support you to do your best work of your life at Airbnb? That one question, how can I support you to do the best work of your life here at Airbnb, is a powerful question. And that's one that we tried to integrate into our leaders' um, conversations with their direct reports. So um, how would this look like in practice? Like um, now, now, now everyone has like, like the big picture thinking and the big picture overview or the framework, but how would this like look like in practice? Well, I think that question I just asked is a really powerful one. How can I support you as your, I'm your boss. So I want, you, you know, many people feel like their boss wants them to fail, but instead I'm saying, how can I support you? to do the best work of your life. Wow, that's a big expectation. Yes. I know you're going to support <laughs> I know you're going to support me as as the boss, but now I also hear that you want me to do the best work of my life. Like oh, that's <laughs> here at Airbnb. Well, that question in terms of practicality and like, like let's break it down. That's a very practical question. It helps employees so their boss understands that they want the boss wants them to, to to win and to succeed. Number two is they also want them to do that want you to do the best work of your life, which is scary for some people. And then, in essence, the fundamental question here is saying instead of the boss deciding what tools and resources you have to do this, you're actually as the employee responsible to speaking it to the boss and saying, "Here's what I need. I need instead of once a month a meeting with you, I need once a week, or I need a professional training conference twice a year, not once a year." Or um, I want a bonus pro program that actually is not given out uh, annually, but it's given out quarterly. Um, or I need a new computer. You know, my so the software on my computer is really old, and my laptop's five years old. So, I mean, these are the kinds of things. Now, does that mean as the boss you actually have to, to do all of those things? No. But the conversation it sets up is a conversation that's valuable, that takes the direct report, the employee, out of the role of being the victim. So there's a word called agency. And agency, in essence, means, means a person feels like they have some sense of ownership. And the, one of the key things in business is to create a company where employees feel a sense of agency, which mm -hmm. means that they feel a sense that they have a responsibility to, to do something, including to create the conditions for them to do great work. Um, so in essence, by asking your employee to help craft what it is you need, You're actually seeing whether your employee can move out of the traditional victim mentality of how many employees feel and move into the place of agency and helping them to sort of define the conditions that will allow them to flourish. Uh, I never thought it about like this way. Uh, great, great advice. I really like this. So um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about like your recent projects um, where you help elders. So um, could you please speak to that for everyone who doesn't know about uh, the project? Sure. So about your book. Also, you could yeah. also speak to your book. Yeah. Yeah. So I um, at Airbnb while I was there, I start people started calling me the modern elder. And <laughs> it's because I was twice the age of the average employee in the company. So I joined when I was 52. I'm now 58. And the average age in the company when I joined was 26. So people sort of saw me as the elder. Now, I didn't like that. I was like sounded <laughs> like elderly. But elderly is what you are in the last 10 years of your life. Elder is what you are when it's a relative term. If you're a 52-year-old, surrounded by 26-year-olds, 
You're probably the elder. You're two, I was two generations older. So what I realized over time is that the, the pat, we used to think of an elder as someone that we gave reverence to. You revered and respected your elders. That, that, that doesn't exist in most of the world anymore. I mean, in some places it does, but not, not most places. Um, so the modern elder is not about reverence. They're about relevance. And relevance means that you're as curious as you are wise. Because in order to take your timeless wisdom and apply it to modern day problems, you've got to understand context. Context requires you to ask a lot of questions and be curious about what you're doing. So I joined Airbnb as a hotelier with a huge background in, in creating hotels. Some of that was valuable to home sharing and Airbnb. Most of it wasn't. So I actually had to learn at age 52, what does it mean to be in a tech company for the first time? Which meant that I didn't know what the hell I was doing a lot of times. I was not in my comfortable habitat. But that required me to be the beginner's mind and at times be the dumbest person in the room. So that process of being the oldest and the dumbest. Now, if I was the oldest and dumbest all the time, I wouldn't have kept a job. Um, but sometimes my, my beginner's mind question led to us seeing a blind spot that everybody else hadn't seen. And so... Um, all of this led me to thinking, gosh, power, you know, we as, as humans are going to live 10 years longer, but power in a digital society is moving 10 years younger. And what mm -hmm. I mean by that is, you know, Uber and Airbnb and all kinds of companies, Google, et cetera, have been started, Facebook, started by very young people because sure. there's a growing reliance on DQ, digital intelligence. But if we're going to live longer and power is moving younger, we've created this 20-year irrelevancy gap um, that a lot of people feel in midlife. So I decided to write the book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, to talk about my experience at Airbnb, but to talk more broadly about how we as a society can create more intergenerational collaboration in the workplace now that we have five generations together. Um, and while I was writing the book, I, I came, became very clear of how many people in midlife, generally it's people 45 to 65, were both bewildered and anxious about the fact that they didn't feel very relevant anymore. And in some cases, they didn't know how they were going to pay for their retirement. In other cases, they didn't know how to get a job because they felt like what they knew was no longer valuable. And so I decided to create the world's first midlife wisdom school. Uh, called the Modern Elder Academy on three acres of a beachfront in Mexico. And um, we've had 450 people from 17 countries go through the program so far. It's a one-week program, quite intensive. Uh, over 50% of the people are on some kind of scholarship that we give them. So it's not just rich people. It's all people of all diversity, socioeconomic diversity, uh, because that's what makes it interesting. Um, and it's been extremely successful. So we would love some of your German uh, midlifers or those who have a parent, those who, those who are listening and have a parent uh, who's in midlife uh, or later uh, to send them our way. <laughs> so got it. So basically, like, why did you start the project? Because you seem like you are super, super passionate about it. Like, um, was the reason like, uh, like, like money driven or like passion driven or just speak? I don't. Yeah, I don't get paid anything. So I, I oh. built a three. I built a three acre campus. Um, I work full time there and I get paid zero. No rent. For <laughs> 
zero money for my time. This sounds so, crazy to me. <laughs> just, well, I mean, I'm lucky to be at a place in my life where I don't need to make any money. And I, um, so I wanted to give back. I, I felt like I've spent most of my life as a for-profit entrepreneur and I've done fine. But now I'm a social entrepreneur. And whereas a for, for-profit entrepreneur finds a consumer need, fills it, and then is successful. If you're a social entrepreneur, you find a society need and you fill it. Uh, and so the society need that I saw was we talk about lifelong learning, but we don't ha- we have precious few places for someone in midlife to go and understand how to repurpose themselves um, in in ways that are meaningful, and not just in terms of building a bunch of new skills on you know learning tech, but lo- truly shifting their mindset about and understanding the the how to mine their mastery for what they've created some wisdom on and how that's actually um, repurposed out there in the community. So um, yeah, it's been hugely successful. And why do I like it? I like the idea that we can be a catalyst for other people around the world to create their own version of a midlife wisdom school. So um, like, what would you say, like, how do we close the age gap? Like, um, how, I think, so I think it goes both directions. So there's, there's some old line companies especially manufacturing and old school financial services companies that are powered by people who are in power are people 50 and older. Those companies need to figure out how to integrate younger people in their organizations as they have had to do that forever. But it's more important that they do it today because frankly, that DQ, that digital intelligence is often coming from the younger people. Similarly, we have tech companies and all kinds of new product companies out there that are being created by people in their 20s, by millennials generally. And they get up and operating and then they don't have anybody in the organization who has experience and insight that they can build based upon their wisdom of having been around for a while. Um, I don't suggest that a millennial who has a company that's succeeding, just hire an older person for the sake of having an older person. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think there's any value in that. I think the value is if that older person is a modern elder and they're as curious as they are wise, such that they're constantly learning, that kind of person can be very valuable as I was to the founders of Airbnb. And I think, so I think that's the opportunity with five generations in the workplace for the first time. We do need to learn to figure out how to, um, create some collaboration across the generations um, that allows us to all, you know, be more successful as a result. Got it. So um, are you also like helping um, people deal with this <clears throat> whole aging thing, like um, getting older and, and stuff like that? Or isn't this part of the whole project? No, it's definitely part of the project is um, how do you help help people see, have a, have a positive perspective on aging? Um, there's studies that have shown that when people have a positive perspective on aging, um, it allows them to live seven and a half more years of life. So um, it that's actually has not, a huge, that's a lot. Yeah. It actually it's more has a more of an effect on your longevity than does stopping smoking or actually starting to exercise. Um, and so, <laughs> so, the, so we that's at the core of what we do is help people to improve their mindset when it comes to aging. 
So so we have to talk about this because I I just turned 25 and I'm already scared of turning 30 and having a family and stuff like that. So <laughs> um, I haven't uh, figured this whole aging thing out. So what would you tell to everybody who hasn't like a positive mindset about aging? Well, the thing that we, you know, ver the societal narrative is very clear, which is that um, over time your brain deteriorates <laughs> and so, so does your body. The good, brain news, good news. <laughs> yeah, the brain, the brain deteriorates, gets smaller, and it actually, your recall, your memory isn't as good, and you're not as fast with your brain. But what a lot of people don't know is there's a bunch of other benefits you get as you age when it comes to your brain. The biggest one and, and the most most irrefutable, the one that's most obvious, is that one of the things you get better at as you get older is you get better at what's called left brain, right brain tango. And what I mean by that is how do you move from the logical to the lyrical side? How do you move from uh, the, the you know, process-oriented to the poetic side? And to do it very quickly and adeptly, which basically means that you can think synthetically or holistically, you can connect the dots. You are able to see a bunch of mess, and in that mess is this thing you distill down to saying, this is the thing that's most important. Now, similar to what I was talking about earlier with the Airbnb founders with their priorities. It's like, okay, let's distill, distill down what's important. That skill of being able, with your brain, to, through pattern recognition, understand what's important is exceptionally valuable, and it's something you get better with age. Similarly, emotional intelligence grows as you age because you actually get more clear on your own emotions and you're able to moderate them better and you're able to understand other people's emotions better. So that's a huge benefit. So the, there's a lot of things you can look at and say, wow, you know, as you get older, you get better at these things. And so it's not just about decline and, and disease. <laughs> got it. And, and don't worry, Hardy, you've got, you've got lots of years ahead of you. <laughs> Thank God, yeah. Um, so, uh, like, how does how does the weekend or how does uh, uh, like the whole experience look like when um, somebody just just enters the project or the academy? So it's a week long. It's from Sunday to Sunday. So people start on a Sunday and they leave on a Sunday, and um, it's it's very intensive in terms of it goes from early in the morning till later in the e later in the evening. But most of it's a lot of it's outside. Lots of it's experiential. Um, so sometimes it's using nature as a metaphor for learning about leadership. Um, so uh, we've the part that's beautiful is uh, we have there's something called NPS, Net Promoter Score, which is a it's a metric used for customer satisfaction, and we're in the 99th percentile of NPS in our first year of being in business, which is shocking because usually the first year. You're figuring out all the things that aren't working. <laughs> yeah. But clearly there's a, a real market for people who are looking for um, wisdom in midlife. <laughs> Got it. So so how does 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 a day look like in this week? Like um, what are you doing and what are the activities and yeah. Well, so a simple day would be you get up in the morning and you do learn a bit about mindfulness. So you learn about either meditation or yoga. Um, we do uh, mid-morning, uh, what's called a wisdom circle, and it, everybody sort of talks about what's going on for them. Uh, so it's sort of like a in the moment, how do, I, how do I get clear about what I'm feeling right now? And how do I articulate that in a vulnerable w w way with other people, which is a, it's a form of self-awareness. 
We do some journaling around that as well. Um, and then we actually have some education component. And the education component can be on everything from how to build your emotional intelligence to how, how do you shift a mindset. If you have a habit of way, of way of thinking, how do you shift that? What are the steps you do? Um, how do you actually move into a learning space? If you're 52 years old, which is the average age of the person who comes to our program, and you spent most of your life not learning but just doing, how do you shift back into learning again? And so we help people to understand that. We help people to understand, like, in the course of their history uh, in working, what has their mastery been? Like, what are the things that they're best at? They're not so obvious. Um, then we have a, a great lunch program, uh, and people go swimming. They go surfing because we're right on the beach. Uh, they can go, you know, uh, mountain biking because there's mountain bikes there. It's a beautiful area. Then we have an afternoon session. Uh, and we have massages. People get massages later in the day. Um, and then we have a dinner and usually after the dinner, there's, you know, people sort of go off and in smaller groups and and have conversations about how they want to change their life. Um, so it's a, it's a full day. So, so unfortunately I'm too young for the the project. (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) You are. Um, although we've had, you know, When we started the program, we thought it was only going to be people 45 <laughs> to 65. But in fact, we've had people from as, as young as 30 and as old as 78. So um, there are a lot, you know, midlife is broadly defined today. <laughs> I got it. So um, before we switch gears for the last time, um, because I know you're like involved in a, a few different projects in San Francisco, right? A Birmingham project and, and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, um, like you seem to be an, an, an expert on aging. So, um, what would you tell everybody who is listening to this episode? Like what would be your best advice on dealing with this whole midlife, uh, crisis thing? Well, I think the number one thing is to realize that, um, there's a word called liminal when you're in, in a liminal state, you're in between two things. Mm. And, um, when we were in puberty, Hardy, you went through pu- puberty, what last year? Um, so puberty is a time when you're in a a transitional state so midlife is also you know there's adolescence which is the puberty period and then there's middlescence and middle middlescence is what happens in midlife and there's it's also sort of a liminal time uh dan gilbert has a beautiful ted talk uh and he basically showed that uh everybody at every age um, underestimates how much change they will have in the next 10 years. And because we think that actually there won't be change, we get surprised by change. And so I think the number one thing I would suggest that people who are older realize is that liminality or the process of going through a transition or something is the nature of life your whole life. It doesn't end. If you are not in transition, you are slowly dying and you're actually losing the opportunity to learn and try new things. I am 58 years old now, and based upon online longevity sites, I will live till age 98. If that is true, I am only halfway through my adult life if I start counting at age 18. I'm 40 years through my adulthood, and I have 40 years of adulthood ahead of me, which is why I actually have taken up surfing and Spanish at age 58, which is not something people tend to do at that age. No. <laughs> But when you realize you have that much life still ahead of you, Uh, and probably most of it, the vast majority of it, in a relatively healthy state, um, that means you're willing to try new things, get liminal, um, and um, uh, open up the horizons of 
what your life can be, which means that a person can be at any age and feel somewhat timeless about how they live their life. Uh, I'm I'm really loving this this mindset shift. Um, I think a great your your advice is great. So um, let's switch gears the last time. So um, like, what are the projects you're currently also involved in? So there are a number. So Burning Man is uh, a, you know a big festival that I'm I've been on the board of <coughs> for almost 10 years. Um, it's sorry sorry to interrupt, but but could you please tell everybody what's that? So Burning Man is a huge arts and um, music and spirituality festival in the United States. Uh, and people come from all over the world. It's uh, sort of famous. And it. Uh, so I've been on the board helping them operate for a long time. Um, I, I won't say anything more than that. <laughs> if someone doesn't, know, someone doesn't know Burning Man, go to the Burning Man website. You'll see, you'll see more. Um, <laughs> I got it. I'm, I'm an advisor to beyond Airbnb, five other companies. Uh, one of them based in London, um, where I help the founder, usually the founder's average age is about 30. I help the founder take their idea, um, usually somewhere re related to hospitality and technology. And, and each of these companies now are, some of these companies are quite big and billion dollar valuations. My role is really to be the, the mentor and advisor to the CEO. And, uh, and it's been beautiful. So um, what are the bottlenecks um, in, 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 in those projects or when you are advising other people? Like what are the common mistakes that you see that entrepreneurs do? And um, yeah, what are the common patterns that you are seeing? So, well, it's some, it's some of what I said earlier, which is that um, often they're trying to do too many things at once and, not, and not, they're not doing anything well. Um, they're making decisions about people that are not well thought through in terms of like hiring, firing, or growing people without really understanding what that person's capabilities are. Um, and uh, so I think sometimes it relates to those things. Sometimes it's strategically, you know, it's why, why Airbnb asked me to be the head of strategy um, six and a half years ago. So, um, so I think those are the things that I probably bring to the table, sort of emotional intelligence, strategic thinking, you know, focus, How do you edit properly? Um, and sometimes, frankly, more than anything, especially for an entrepreneur who feels alone, uh, I am the person that they break down and cry with and, and, and tell me exactly what's going on with them emotionally. And uh, because often they feel so successful, but they feel scared to be open with the people they work with about some of their fears. Got it. So um, at the end, I always ask like five quick questions, but um, because a lot of entrepreneurs are currently listening to this episode and you're such a successful entrepreneur. So what would you tell them? Like what would be, I know this is such a broad question, but like what would be your best advice for entrepreneurs like in general? Like, like what would you tell them with all your years of experience and Yeah, my, I think the number one thing I'd tell them is uh, do the opposite of what everybody else is saying you should do. <laughs> and I don't do it just for the sake of being opposite. But if you have an idea and you're passionate about it and you believe in it, uh, trust me, I spent some time with Richard Branson from Virgin. He wrote the foreword for my first book, The Rebel Rules. Um, and he's basically said to me, listen, when I'm starting a new business, Chip, 
I always go by the mantra, I am the market, I am the market, I am the market, which basically means create a product that you fall in love with. So if you feel that passionately about it, that you as a customer will love this, even, even if it's not for everybody else, go do it. My first hotel was exactly that, the Phoenix Hotel. It was a cool rock and roll hotel. And it was not the kind of place my parents wanted to go, but it was the kind of place I wanted to go. And so that kind of passionate, I am the customer, I am the market mentality means you're going to create something that people are going to talk about. Got it. Um, so, Chip, could you please tell everybody where can they find you on the social web, connect with you, and so on? And sure. So my website's Chip Conley, C-O-N-L-E-Y.com. That actually has a, a link there to the modernelderacademy.org. Um, you can find me. I, I, I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, uh, a little bit Instagram, not as much as, <laughs> as most other people. Um, I, I am more the written word kind of person as opposed to the, the visual kind of person. So that's part of the reason I do a lot. I've written a lot of articles on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, so that's how you can find me. <laughs> so um, the first out of the five question is, Chip, um, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? Uh, Man's Search for Meaning by oh, Victor, great book. Yeah. Victor Frankl. Love that book um, for so many reasons. Uh, definitely helped me to understand meaning. Um, I like Daniel Goldman's book uh, called Emotional Intelligence. Uh, it was. It's not not as exciting today, but when it first came out more than 20 years ago, it was you know way ahead of the game. Um, what's a third book? Uh, uh, third book, I would just say probably uh, just about anything that Malcolm Gladwell has written. Uh, I've always enjoyed. Um, so that's my first first answers. <laughs> so the second question is, uh, Chip, um, what are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most? Oh wow! <laughs> I love I love when I was a kid. I loved The Wizard of Oz. I I just loved I I loved the beauty of that film from 1939. You know the color of it. Uh, so <laughs> that I love that. Um, there is a Peruvian movie called Undertow that is a beautiful story of a love affair and um and 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 the idea of someone dying but not being gone um and another movie i love that's sort of like that is coco so coco by pixar which is the um, animation film about day of the dead in in uh, mexico got it so um the third question is um what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory You know what? I'll be really simple on that one. The most, the most useful is the New York uh, subscription to the New York Times. <laughs> you know, I think people really undervalue, you know, how much great media and journalism is what it's worth. And the New York Times invests in, in journalism and true journalism. And, and so um, for a small amount of money every month, I, I get access to, you know, the best journalists in the world. So um, the fourth question is, uh, what is the most or what are the most important realizations you've had in the last couple of years? And we had some guests who shared something deeply personal about their business, family life, health, time, about like anything. So speak to anything you feel comfortable sharing with us today. I think the most important thing I have learned over time is that presence 
being present with someone is the most valuable thing that people appreciate. Being present basically means being the opposite of absent. Often we are absent because we have this. <laughs> so you're talking to someone while you're actually speaking to the face of your screen. So you're talking to two faces at once, the face of your screen and the face of the person, but you're actually often giving more attention to the face of your screen. So being present basically is the greatest gift you could give someone else, is to truly hear them with every cell in your body, um, to listen at, with, with you know, empathetic attentiveness, um, and then to be responsive to that person. So I think, that's, I think as you get older, that ability to have presence, which often is enhanced by mindfulness or meditation, um, is a skill you can build. Great advice. So um, the last question for today is, Chip, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? I would say to my 20-year-old self, um, regret is a painful emotion. And, and the kind of regret that's big, bigger, um, the regret of doing something and failing is actually much smaller than the regret of never having tried it. So just know that as you get older, um, better for you to take the risk whether it's asking someone to dance on a, you know, at a bar um, or it's starting a business that you know that you're supposed to start um, or it's telling your friend something that they needed to hear um, before they unfortunately passed away. You know, the, the fact that you loved them and, and the fact that you regret that you, know, you didn't share that kind of love with them enough. So I think just being open and vulnerable and authentic um, and not waiting for the future, but knowing it's to, you know, the, you plant the seeds for the future today um, is, is huge. Um, Chip, thank you very much for sharing your story, yeah. your journey yeah. here on the podcast. And thank you very much for, for your unique insights and sharing your advice here today. Thank you, Hardy. Thank you for being a great uh, voice in the world. And, um, you know, especially in Berlin, which is a gorgeous and wonderful place. <laughs> Thank you very much. See ya. All right. Bye-bye.